Nadia, um, well, she holds the key post of um, distinguished archivist at the Warburg Institute itself. And she wrote her PhD on the Cappella del Pergolo and the Tempietto delle Muse in the Palazzo Ducale in Urbino. Is that right? That's right. That's a summary of what it says here. <laughs> um, what slipped off the, the, the arrows of Oedipus. Um, that was pub and it was published in 2001. Yes, yeah. okay. And she, you've also published quite a lot of things on audiovisuals themselves. So it's very appropriate that you should be here today <laughs> talking about. Um, Warburg, Yates, and memory. Okay, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, Richard, for putting this together. Thank you all for coming, and yeah, I'm delighted to speak here about the affinities between A.B. Warburg and Francis Yates. Any, any? In her essay, The Hermetic Tradition in Renaissance Science, published in 1967, Frances Yates looks back at the, at the gist of her recent now seminal works on hermeticism and the advancements of modern sciences. Advocating further and deeper research, she writes, and I quote, even in Isaac Newton, as is well known, there are survivals of hermetic influences and even in Galileo, while Kepler provides the obvious example of a great modern figure who still has one foot in the old world of universal harmony which sheltered the Magus, end of quote. Among the three mentioned giants of early modern science, it is Yeats' remark about Johannes Kepler to which I want to draw your attention. In her Giordano Bruno of 1964 and The Art of Memory of 1966, she had touched upon the fact that this father of modern science was well acquainted with the corpus hermeticum. Kepler's teaching, she concluded, relied on the Pythagorean doctrine of the harmony of the spheres, which he believed had its origin in Hermes Trismegistus. Yet Yates also emphasizes Kepler's dismissal of the hermetists as true mathematici mathematicians. Accordingly, the analogy between microcosm and macrocosm could not be the base for mathematical calculations. At the same time, Yates writes that the Magus and the early modern scientists used the same tools with different intentions. The cultural historian and inventor of transdisciplinary research, A.B. Warburg, writing just over half a century earlier, also spoke about tools in a similar context. In one, of, in one of his most famous essays, dedicated to the prophecies in the age of the German Reformation, he mentions a, quote, single primitive tool that the astrologer can use either to make measurements or to work magic, end of quote. Warburg considered such a tool a typical as typical for a transitional period, the so-called, quote, age of Faust, in which the modern scientist caught between magic and cosmic mathematics was trying to insert the conceptual space, Warburg's famous Denkraum, of rationality in between himself and the object. End of quote. The prototype of such a transitional thinker, 
transitional with regard to the passage from a so-called mythical construction to a mathematical calculation of the universe was Johannes Kepler for Warburg. In his Mysterium Cosmographicum of 1596, Kepler refers to a model consisting of Plato's solids that is congru congruent geometrical, geometric shapes to illustrate the distance of the orbits of the six known planets. In the geometry of the various forms, Warburg saw a calculable entity, but Kepler obviously had not calculated these forms through observation. The interpretation, so this interpretation, Warburg's interpretation, differs from Yeats's notion when she writes, and I quote, this mighty mathematician, i.e. Johannes Kepler, was who discovered the elliptical orbits of the planets had in its general outlook by no means emerged from the from Renaissance influences. His heliocentricity had a mythical background. His great discovery about the planetary orbits was emphatically welcomed by him as confirmation of the music of the spheres. And there are survivals of animism in his theories. End of quote. From what I have said so far, it transpires that Warburg's and Yeats's interest in early modern sciences resulted in distinctively different views. Warburg believed in the illuminating, illuminating power of Kepler's discoveries through observation, calculation, and notably a recourse to the mathematics of classical antiquity, although he noticed that Kepler had not overcome superstitious beliefs. He produced horoscopes, used images, of the animated sky and refers to the power of the planets. Just one example here. The power of the planets over the human fate. Just as the ellipse had two focal points, Kepler's mind was supposedly bipolar too. For Yeats, on the other hand, Kepler's work demonstrates the syncretism which preluded the scientific revolution of the 17th century. The figure of Johannes Kepler seems a good starting point for illustrating the affinities between A.B. Warburg and the professed Warburgian, Francis Yates. Even though these affinities are obvious, both scholars developed their respective hypotheses quite differently, enhanced through dif different conclusions. In this respect, the sustained interest in Giordano Bruno is another case in point. Warburg's work on Bruno had hardly taken shape when he died of a heart attack on 26 October in 1929. And his notes are extremely fragmented. Yet from all we can deduct from the extant fragments, it seems clear that for Warburg, Bruno had played an essential role in shaping the thinking of the modern era. In theory, he had allocated a prominent position to the Dominican monk and philosopher in his major project on the mechanics and the evolution of Western civilization, his Bilder Atlas titled Memosyne, and I just recall this with an image to you. In 1929, on his prolonged research trip to Italy, Warburg had only just begun to get a grip of Bruno's so-called way of thinking. Fired by enthusiasm, he bought a whole library of 350 vol volumes, 
which later helped Yeats familiarize herself with Italian scholarship on Bruno. As a self-proclaimed image historian, Vabo concentra concentrated on Bruno's treatment of images, in particular in his Spaccio della Bestia Triomfante of 1584. In a nutshell, his idea was that Bruno had overcome superstitious beliefs in the animation of the sky through allegorical interpretation and thus made the important step of a symbolic rather than a literal reading of images. To the philosopher Ernst Cassira, he writes from Italy, and I quote Warburg. Here the man whose heavyweight status grows important for me is Giordano Bruno. His epistemological critique, which hides itself behind the symbolism of the gods' campaign against celestial demons, is in truth a critique of pure unreason, which I can immediately place in the historical context with my psychological historical material, in brackets, Harmony of the Spheres of 1589. End of quote. Here, Vabo quotes once again the rebirth of a platonizing model of the cosmos. The quoted harmony of the spheres refers to the allegorical play staged at the Medici wedding in Florence in 1589, to which Vabo had devoted a whole study in 1895. The respective relevance of, his, of this cosmos vision was on the one hand the creation of a symbolic model through abstraction, on the other, the idea of the movement of the spheres around a central axis. Here's the axis again. By means of abstraction, the symbol or metaphor, so the symbol or the metaphor, offered in Warburg's view a potential bridge between empirical analysis and epistemology. Along the same lines, the reform of the heavens in Bruno's Spaccio is seen as an allegory of the reform of the soul through moral philosophy. The fundamental clue for Warburg is Bruno's use of the scholastic term synderesis, which he calls the son of reason. Bruno's synderesis is the conscience of the ethically virtuous, reformed, in fact, supposedly enlightened personality. While Bruno was for Warburg one of the first enlightened thinkers, for Yeats he was almost the opposite, and we have heard that already, Amagus. She had drawn this conclusion from his, I quote, allusion to the magic statutes of Asclepius in a list of 150 stars, end of quote, in his De Umbris Idearum of 1582, Bruno's first mnemonic treatise. Yeats' interest in the Italian thinker goes back to the mid-1930s, just before she got acquainted with the uniqueness and the riches of the Warburg Library, which subsequently shaped her work. Yet Yeats does not seem to have read Warburg's own works, perhaps to do, due to the lack of a translation into English. Gertrud Bing, Warburg's former congenial collaborator and later editor of his works apparently mentored her in this respect. Proof of Bing's influence on Yeats's works are her lengthy, quite intimate comments on the so-called second version of the manuscript of The Art of Memory, which was not finished before Bing died in July 19, 
1964. It was, however, the art historian and philosopher Edgar Wind, and we've heard that already too, one of Warburg's exegetes and perhaps his closest follower of the next generation, who was instrumental in forming the question that led to Yeats's more successful studies. He explained to her that not the support of the Copernican theory, but that presumably his following, so Bruno's following a mythic Platonic tradition, triggered Bruno's controversy with the church. In our autobiographical fragments, Yeats confirms that Wind reacted to her long, subsequently never published introduction to La Cena delle Ceneri, whose genesis she must have discussed with him at the very first meeting in 1936. In a long and elegantly written, written letter of 1938, Wind draws her attention to the afterlife of ancient mysticism. I think, he writes, I can prove that the mystical approach to Christianity was one of the strongest forces in the re revived interest in paganism, which is symptomatic of the so-called Renaissance. End of quote. A few lines down, Wint suggests to replace Yeats's opposition of a reactionary Renaissance versus a somehow progressive science-oriented Middle Ages with another, namely the mystical allegorical versus the literal orational interpretation of Christianity. This could explain Bruno's method, which resembled so strikingly that of Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. And I quote again from Wind's letter. The same fight against the literal-minded grammarians and mathem mathematicians, the same glorification of enthusiasm and heroic virtue, the same ironic use of imagery, the same insistence on the esoteric character of the mysteries, and last but not least, the same display of memo techniques, which is really based on the use of a very few fundamental schemes of translation from which the most extraordinary number of propositions can be derived. End of quote. The crucial keywords are contained in these few lines, namely mysteries or mysticism and memo techniques. Yates later states that Wind's criticism resulted in her very first article for the Journal of the Warburg Institute, Juno, uh, Giordano Bruno's Conflict with Oxford, published in the second volume of 1939. There she follows Wind's suggestions and explores Bruno's Platonism. As Joseph Trapp emphasized in his introduction to Bruno and the Hermetic tradition, Yeats was not alone in her new approach. With Ernst Cassirer's Individuum on Cosmos of 1926, dedicated to Warburg, a new era of the study of Renaissance thought had begun, with the works of Paul Oscar Christella, Eugenio Garin, and above all, Yeats's friend and colleague, B.P. Walker, whose spiritual and demonic magic from Piccino to Campanella came out in 1958. In a lecture of 1952, Yeats linked her new thesis for the first time with Bruno's little-known mnemonic work. For this occasion, she, she designed her famous wheel in order to demonstrate in front of her audience how, by using Bruno's magical memory system, I quote, man should remember all the physical contents of the subcelestial world and the entire sum of human experience. 
end of quote. The link between the structure of knowledge and the structure of the world is obvious. In her Bruno and the Hermetic tradition, Yates writes that the, that the quote, cult of the Prisca Theologia laid a greatly increased emphasis on the sun, and that this undoubtedly influenced both Ficino sun magic and pseudo-Dionysian light symbolism. Her next paragraph deals with Copernicus, stressing that his revolutionary theory was born, quote, in, another, in, a, in the atmosphere of the religion of the world, and that Copernicus quotes Pythagoras, Pythagoras as the authority on the movement of the earth. Bruno was, however, the thinker who constituted a relation between Ficino's sun magic and Copernicus's theory. In her 1952 paper, Yates remarks that Bruno did not approach the Copernican theory at all as a mathematician, but through sun mysticism the prophecy of the revival of an era of a new religion. Warburg, in turn, had followed more or less the same line of thought. Yet not unlike Kassira, he drew different, drew different conclusions. In his individual and cosmos, Kassira quotes Bruno's Epistola Explicatoria for the Spaccio. In this letter, Bruno refers to the inner light that has been sparked by the divine light of illumination. Wabo calls this phenomenon Bruno's inner heliotropism, a term he borrowed from biology, and interprets it as epistemologically. His idea was that mythological allusions to the sun in personifications of Helios Apollo were not only symbols of cognition, but that it, but excuse me, were not only symbols of cognition as it were of enlightenment in the literal sense, but also referred to the acceptance of heliocentrism. Moreover, he was convinced that heliocentrism had facilitated the discovery of the infiniteness of the universe. In other words, he held that this heliotropism expressed in the rehabilitation or so-called reawakening of the Olympian gods in the 15th century, was responsible for transforming the symbols of the planets circling the earth into the muses who encircle Helios Apollo. And an example is Mantegna's famous Parnassus. Thus, the humanists would have replaced allegorically as well as practically the geocentric and Ptolemaic model of the cosmos with a proto-heliocentric model. Bruno's case demonstrates once again that Warburg's notion of magic as the mythical element of science and Yeats's insistence on magical belief and practice as an integral part of Renaissance thought are related. While Yeats tried to explain how this magic functioned, Warburg remains vague throughout his writings. The terms magic and myth are used in the most general terms for any animism or anthropomorphism. At the same time, he uses magic simply as a catchword for the irrational. Warburg's interest in the afterlife of mythology, on the other hand, 
has a clear source in his studies with the eminent philolog philologist Hermann Usener, who pointed him to the study Mito e Scienza of 1879 by the Italian evolutionist Tito Vignoli. Vignoli writes in the tradition of Giambattista Vico and Warburg following in his footsteps indirectly but strongly believed that myth was a precursor of all modern thinking. While Vico is a missing link in Yeats's work, I have demonstrated elsewhere that Viconian thought shaped Warburg's ideas about the revival of myth of mythological subjects in the age of humanism, such as the Apollo and the Muses. The most striking example, however, is his, Warburg's use of the name of the goddess of memory, Nemosyne, as a faculty of the human mind that he aligns with Kantian rationality. What now do mnemonics have to do with the discovery of the laws of nature? Or in other words, what does the technique to create in one's mind an ordered curse marked by the places associated with images which are associated with things and words to be remembered have to do with the order of the universe? Both the historical and the epistemological answer lies in Aristotle's association of memory and imagination. On one hand, imagination connects association with recollection. On the other, the image is an artificial creation, as an artificial creation imitates nature. <coughs> After the ancient art of memory flourished under the influence of scholasticism and the practice of meditation, and of preaching, its popularity peaked again in the 15th and 16th centuries. Reason was a revived interest in both classical authors and capacities of the human mind. The power of imagination, images, allegories, and symbols seemed able to capture all types of knowledge to form a kind of universal language. This universality made the, the art of memory applicable to a spectrum reaching from metaphysics via cosmology to modern sciences. The practical method of structuring facts in order to facilitate the recollection of information through images was in the 17th century turned into a theoretical method of structuring the entire cosmos of knowledge best known in the form of the encyclopedia and imaginary theater of the mind, the imaginary theater of the mind became a teatro mundi. This was an epistemological transformation from method to model, a step crucial to Warburg's interest in memory since it concerns the conversion from pedagogy to classification. What I mean? becomes clearer when we look at the term Memosyne again, inscribed over the entrance to Warburg's library, and again, like that's Warburg's library in Hamburg, and again, the library in London. In a statement about the nature of his library of July 1929, Warburg refers to his motto, Memosyne, by calling the institution he founded, his library, a, quote, filter system for retrospective sober-mindedness, whose mission was to prevent the chaos of unreason. 
Knowledge, in particular, the knowledge of past experience, thus is thus the predisposition of reasonable thinking. Ernst Kassirer would later write that in its organization and its intellectual structure, the library embodies the idea of the methodological unity of all fields and all currents of intellectual history. In other words, the idea of the library was not only reflected in its form, it had become its form. There can be little doubt that Warburg conceived his library as a strictly scientific cosmos of knowledge. The center of the cosmos was a programmatic elliptical reading room, a reminiscence of Kepler's revolutionary discovery of the orbit of Mars. But Warburg's library was but Barbuck's library also corresponds to the microcosm of the human brain. Borrowing from the terminology of a late 19th century German thinker, the neurophysiologist Ewald Hering, Warburg turned the notion of a memory as a function of the brain, the brain being defined by Hering as organized matter, into a general model for his own theory of memory. In the preparatory notes for his known lecture on the snake dance, delivered in April 1923, Warburg wrote that with the instruments of his library, library, he was trying to answer the problem Hering had been formulating so well with his coinage, memory is organized matter. Yet Warburg neither explains the implied analogy between the structure of the library and the structure of the brain, nor does he say what he considers Hering's particular problem. Since Hering discusses the inscription of memory, the inscription of memory on the cerebral or nervous substance and its function with regard to reproduction, his problem must have been, in Warburg's view, the lawful interdependence between physiology and excuse me, physiology and psychology or, as Hering says, matter and consciousness. Because most processes of memory are unconscious, Hering argues memory must be material in its nature, a kind of genotype inscribed in the nervous substance and passed on from generation to generation. In this particular aspect, the neurophysiology of his day was, was it was Warburg, what Warburg adopted. Subsequently, he conceived his library as a kind of image or projection of material memory. Following the so-called rule of good neighborliness, the order of the books on the shelves reflect the idea of a continuum from myth and magic to modern science. To sum up, I've just, I have tried to highlight the difference between Warburg's and Yates's treatment of essentially the same question. A, in which ways did the survival of antiquity, namely ancient knowledge, shape the beginnings of early modern science? And B, what is the relationship between macrocosm and microcosm that is the universe and the body and the mind in this period? While Yeats, in search for answers, discovers a com complex yet productive syncretism, in her ob objects of study, for Warburg, the crucial, indeed epistemological answer lies in the capacity to abstract, to create symbols and metaphors, and to think in abstract terms. 
Thank you very much.